Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, the show that looks at where the law has been and where it's going. I'm Mike Madison. I've been in the legal profession for decades now. Currently, I'm a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, USA. In this episode, Dan Hunter speaks to Evan Wong, the CEO of Checkbox.ai, a legal automation platform provider, about life as a founder of legal tech solutions and how to break into the field. Take a listen. Welcome, Evan Wong, CEO of Checkbox.ai, to the Future Law Podcast. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. You've had a, an amazing journey. Tell us first uh, about Checkbox, and then we'll sort of dig into what's actually happened in Checkbox history. Checkbox belongs to what people call nowadays as no-code platforms. So we particularly have built a no-code platform for legal automation. So what that means is as a non-technical user, use Checkbox and drag and drop and create your own automation tools around things like intake and triage, things like document generation, and even self-service advice, right? So it's really about how do we empower the legal industry to be able to take you know, expertise in process and expertise in knowledge and be able to actually create these uh, tools for other people who may not be experts in the process or the knowledge to actually run through and get to a, an outcome, whether that's a document or a piece of advice or you know, getting even to the correct lawyer um, to continue with the workflow itself. I've been following your um, path and, and the development, you know, the technology, particularly you, you keep adding things to it. I, I noticed the sort of the, the latest iteration, it, it's moved well past sort of the early, early stuff, which is sort of document automation, a little bit of sort of flowcharts and things is now sort of much more a, a fully functional no code workflow tool for, for legal and, and compliance. But I understand that that wasn't where you started with checkbox. We'll, we'll talk about your, your previous startups in a, in a second, but, but you had to sort of, um, uh, play around with the, the value proposition of the idea and, and change a little bit. Can you sort of talk about what, where you started and how you ended up with where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. I often get asked, you know, um, how did you come up with the idea of checkbox? And my answer is always, I didn't, I didn't come up with the idea. I came up with an idea. And it was through actually speaking to the market, understanding what customers really wanted, that we end up going through what we call in startup land pivots, pivoted a few times to land where we are today, right? And, and so where we started, that, that idea that sparked all of it was came from the fact that I, I came from a small business background. I had another um, business before Checkbox and I came out of law school or I was, I was actually running that during law school and I found employment law in particular, pretty confusing. As a small business owner, I would jump on the government website, read through the ATOs, you know, walls and walls of text and fair work, walls and walls of text and and click on those, you know, all those links on the page and go through these like link rabbit holes. And then by the end of it, I would think to myself, well, well, I'm actually kind of confused. How do I apply this? Does it apply to me? And, and that's where we started. And, and, and Checkbox started in an idea called employment, a compliance employment law. And I took that out into market spoke with a whole bunch of small business owners who all resonated with the challenge. They all resonated with the solution that I had, which was, you know, this mobile app that allowed you to connect on one end to those feeds that I was talking about, ATO, fair work, etc. But on the other end, connect with like your bookkeeping, your employee records, your CRM, and it would match the two kind of together and give you a real-time checklist, right? Of like, now you have to do this to stay compliant. Oh, the laws have changed. Now you've got to do this. Oh, you've hired someone new. Now you're more than 15 people. You're no longer a small business. So therefore these rules apply, right? So it's like this dynamic, almost like a assistant 
for compliance, right? That's where we started and people resonated with that solution. The challenge was that there wasn't a small business that would pay for it. <laughs> we had to pivot and we pivoted a few times. We literally went through and, and thought, who's big enough to care and pay for compliance? but small enough to struggle with it. And we said franchises. So we were exploring the franchise space for a bit, you know, met with like the, the head of HR operations at, at Boost Juice and all these kind of different people. Eventually realized, okay, that industry is, is not ready for change. And so we looked into the tax space for a little bit, you know, looking at how you can provide the checkbox tool with, uh, you know, your factual matrix, your, your set of, you know, your situation, I guess, from an assets and transaction perspective. And then checkbox will tell you. This is how much you have to pay. This is how you can be eligible for certain exemptions and things like that. And so that was very interesting. The accountancy space was quite excited about that. But the biggest, and this is the final pivot, was when we were actually building these out, we were like, hold on a second, to build this business, we basically have to become subject matter experts across not just tax law, but as we expand employment law and family law and not just Australian law, but you know Singapore law, US law, UK law, et cetera. And we're like, hold on, we're building a LexisNexis or a Thomson Reuters from scratch. <laughs> like this is this this doesn't make sense. So we, uh, we decided um, one night working late doing process maps of legislation. <laughs> that we would, we would basically try and build a platform instead and work with the people who already had the knowledge, the expertise, the credibility, and quite frankly, the liability indemnity to go and use the technology and process map their expertise and be able to convert that into a piece of software that people can uh, interact with and, and get to the right outcome. And that's, that's where we landed in no code. Yeah, that's look, it's a great story and really, really good example of all of the, the pivots. And also, I think... Um, some of those sort of weird insights that you kind of get at the strangest times where it's just like, actually, this this might work and actually it might not. And I mean, so one of the things that really interests me about that story and about your system just generally is selling to lawyers is tough, right? Like lawyers are, are not known for being a really great market. You know, if you're going to score different sectors, law is like way down there in terms of investment in technology and those sorts of things. So how have you found that? You know, why is it that you're actually able to sell to lawyers and people in this regulatory space? I think that's been relatively true, like historically. I think we're kind of at the turn in the industry where if you go to every legal conference, there's always going to be a focus on technology. There are so many roles that are popping up from legal operations as, as a role, but also a movement to, you know, legal transformation. And there's just a lot of talk. I've been in the industry for quite a few years now, right, in legal and in technology. And when I first entered the, the industry, a lot of the talk was around AI a few years ago right? And AI definitely has its place. And there's a lot of successful applications of AI in legal. What came with AI was this giant like hype bubble around technology and law. And I think a lot of it disappointed uh, a lot of the legal industry. And I'm glad that we're kind of now as an industry coming out the back of that and saying, cool, well, technology still has a place. It's still very central to us. But now they're as an industry, are a lot more practical, a pragmatic around it. I would say, yes, it's still hard to sell to legal. That's no doubt. Um, anyone in this space knows that. But I think as an industry, this is a turn, I think, of a corner. And I think fundamentally what is challenging isn't necessarily the mindset anymore of legal teams or, or law firms. It's more so how do we as a firm or how do we as a legal team actually convince the people with the purse strings to invest in the technology? Because historically, because legal hasn't been a, a frequent purchaser of technology like our counterparts in HR or finance where you know they've been running their business of technology for many many years it's often a new relationship with say IT people or new relationship with the CFO to try and explain as a as a legal team or as a lawyer we need to buy technology 
right? It's like, well, you've been operating for the last 20 years without technology. Why do you need it now suddenly, right? And, and so it's, I think it's that, that is the core challenge right now when it comes to selling tech and buying tech in particular. It's less about understanding the value of tech as a legal team or as a lawyer. I think that's clear now. It's more so how do we communicate that now to people outside of um, the immediate users that we do need that investment. Yeah, it's it's really interesting your your observation around the excitement around AI and the you know the bright shiny new thing that that sort of now we kind of go well not so much. I had this experience. In fact, I've been having this experience for the for the last couple of weeks. I'm, I'm teaching at, at the National University of Singapore at the moment as a visiting professor, and I start off with really really boring technology. You know what what I what they sometimes call good old fashioned AI. You know things like flowcharts and and or graphs and. Uh, rule-based reasoning systems and that, and and sort of you have to explain to the students that this isn't the bright shiny thing. We'll get onto the bright shiny thing, but the stuff that actually is the core that actually is being rolled out in practices in legal practice management tools, contract lifecycle management, your sorts of workflow tools, automation, low code or no code automation tools. It's really boring old school technology from a research perspective. It's not the brand new shiny machine learning or blockchain uh, system. But it's actually really useful. And it's interesting that, you know, you've actually gathered a lot of success as a consequence of, of using this old uh, technology, but in a really user friendly and, and useful kind of a way. Whereas a lot of the AI people are like, well, they're, they're, you know, often a solution in search of a problem, which, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So this is your, uh, what is it? 15th startup. I, I know you sort of a serial uh, founder, you know, you first one at, at what was it? 17 or something that, that you sort of had a successful exit from. What do you think are the biggest lessons for the, the young people that are listening in who want to be legal tech entrepreneurs or just entrepreneurs and founders generally in this particular space? What's the sort of the things that they should be focused on in the early stages of, of the journey? Yeah. So, I mean, I would just say that I think I would consider myself definitely a serial entrepreneur, but I haven't nowhere near the number 15. In fact, this is a checkbox <laughs> is, is really my second sort of proper business. And that's worth kind of just mentioning first, because I think there is definitely some um, glamour that comes with, you know, obviously having started more than one organization, but it's also important to understand that it takes time to build a good organization. And so it's not really a race for how many right. you can build, but how great each one can be. So I want to start with that. You know, it's been more than 10 years now, actually, um, about uh, 11 years that I've been um, an entrepreneur. And uh, over those 11 years, I've distributed that across two businesses, right? So in terms of advice for uh, people who are kind of looking to, to get into the space, I would say the biggest blocker that I see for people who know that they want to start something and be an entrepreneur, the biggest blocker is actually getting started. Often it's the idea of not knowing or not knowing how to start or the fear of the challenge being so big that they don't take the first step. They don't realize that no one starts a business. Well, that's not. no one's a very strong word here. Very little people know uh, when starting a business exactly what it's going to look like six months, 12 months, five years, 10 years out, you don't have to work out everything. In fact, you don't even need to know everything. You just need to actually start executing and rely on the fact that you're going to get a lot of feedback, a tremendous, overwhelming amount of feedback by speaking to customers. And it's that knowledge that is going to allow you to actually make the right decisions and build the right business. Sitting by yourself and trying to conceptualize everything without having taken the first step to speak to your customers is where most people will get, like 99% of people get stuck. Like I can't stress that enough. So like in the early days, we we didn't have no code as the vision in mind at the, at the start. 
it wasn't even the second iteration, right? It was like through speaking to the customers and really consolidating what is months of feedback to actually get to something that goes from an idea to an actual sustainable business. So yeah, that would be my biggest tip. Go out there, have an open mind, take it as like a huge learning experience, not a selling experience, because that's another big trap that early entrepreneurs fall into. You have this competitive advantage of being vulnerable in the early days. You don't need to uphold, you know, the credibility of your organization. Um, you don't have, you know, the expectations of a large organization. You're, you're a single person venturing out about to change the world with this new idea that you have. You can be vulnerable. And with vulnerability, you get, you know, a very different type of feedback and a very different type of reception than when you're just trying to, you know, sell basically a product. That, that would be my two pieces of advice. Go out there, get started, and also show some vulnerability and focus on feedback, not selling. Sweet. That's that's really useful. Um, one of the things that, that I often find when students approach me around you know, starting legal tech businesses or, or just students, grads, and others, they often come from a law background, but they don't have a lot of technical experience. And I know that you, sort of when you started out, didn't have a lot of technical experience, and yet you're building a, a highly technical platform. The people that I talk to often say, oh, you know, how can I find the people to, to help me with this? How can I do the technology? Have you got any insight into that? You must have experienced that particular issue. Uh, absolutely. So I don't come from a technical background and you know, today I'm a little bit more technical because I'm running a technology business, but I think people who start off worry about this actually earlier than they should. Because the first thing as a, an entrepreneur or as a startup founder, the first thing you need to figure out is not how to build the product or what the product is, right? It's actually to validate that the problem exists and to gain early traction and validation on that problem set. And so if I take checkbox as an example, it was about nine months before we even got to the idea of like checkbox today, before we wrote, in fact, the first line of code for checkbox. So the question is, if you're not building product in those nine months, what are you doing? Speaking to customers, interviews, right? Really validating the problem set. That can be where a lot of startups in the early days actually fail, where they burn all of their time and money and resources on building the wrong idea. So it's really, really important to spend time doing that first. Now, once you have spent the time to validate the idea and spoken with customers enough to confidently say there is a problem set here that we can solve with this solution, yes, you will have to find a technical co-founder. And the first step is to actually let people know that you're looking for a technical co-founder. And that's letting your networks know, that's letting prospective investors know. And what happens is there's a bit of a trickle effect where people will have their own conversations and one day they'll say, oh, hold on a second. I know Evan is looking for a technical co-founder. I'll link you guys up. The second thing is going to areas where these types of profiles tend to be. So, you know, you might go to tech meetups. I'm sure there's virtual ones that are being run nowadays as well. And it's just being in attendance there. And, and that little hack that I have here is try to get a speaking slot. Try to get a speaking slot or a pitching slot. Like I know that uh, fish burners, for example, for the listeners in, in Sydney, they run like Friday night pitches, right? And you can just go in, you know, pitch your idea to a room full of developers, full of people who are obviously interested in the startup space. And you've just literally spent like four minutes telling them about your idea and the traction and why you know, people should join you. And at the end, rather than asking for, oh yeah, and uh, look, we're looking for investors, we're looking to raise $100,000, you can have your call to action to be, you know, I'm actually looking for a technical co-founder right now. So please come and, can, and speak to me afterwards. I'll be hanging around in that corner, right? And so you'll be surprised the number of people who have just heard your idea, they obviously resonate with it and they have the skill sets, they'll come speak with you. 
You've just closed a funding round. Tell us about that. Is it as exciting and thrilling as it seems if you're looking at it from the outside? And uh, what did it take to get you to that point? Yeah. So really exciting news, right? We recently closed um, a round with Sequoia and Tidal Ventures. Sequoia is obviously a big global brand. So to have them back us, that you know they've backed companies in the early days like Apple and um, Spotify and all the kind of big tech brands that you know. Yeah, hopefully we can... Um, we can uh, join join sort of that hall of fame one day alongside all those amazing founders, but at least we've got the same sort of investors backing us now, which is which is fantastic. Tidal is another great Australian VC as well, um, backing companies like Shipit, who are good friends of ours as well. But you know, great Australian success stories. They basically put in four point five million USD in our recent round, and that's largely going to be used growing a team in the US. So I'll be doing a lot of early meetings, I think, before my Australian hours. I think that leads to the second part of your question, which is, is it as glamorous? The answer is, it's probably perceived to be a lot more glamorous on the newspapers than it is behind the scenes. And any founder will know this. It's uh, it's just like a lot of hard work, but completely worth it because, you know, we wouldn't be founders otherwise. <laughs> founders have this weird inclination to, to be attracted to adversity. I feel like... For me, adversity motivates me. Like it's it's like a problem to solve. It's like being in a shit situation. It's like, okay, wow, this is super messed up. I would never have thought we'd be in this situation, but I'm really keen to solve it. I'm really keen to prove that I can get out of this. And um, and it's a lot of those kind of adversity moments that led up to the fundraising. And so when the news comes out, obviously we're celebrating and popping party poppers and 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 sharing drinks. But but also as founders, we we it's a weird feeling. It's a very mixed feeling of so much hard work has come up to this point and so much will come too, right? Um, and there's a lot more wins and celebrations to come as well. If honestly, if someone told me right now, here's X amount of million dollars, we're going to buy a checkbox. I'm, one, I'm flattered, sure, but you know, it's a journey. And what, what am I going to do with all that money at my age of life? Like I'd rather go on this journey and, um, and really experience the whole thing. It's a great answer. And as you say, you know, if, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? What's as much fun? I have to say that, that yeah, I think exactly. the sort of stuff that the journey that you're on and the sort of things that I sort of do in my spare time, it's like you, you do get hit on the same bruise quite a lot. And um, you do actually have to have quite a lot of resilience to go, yeah, yeah exactly. pick myself up and, and have another go at it. But um, it's amazing where, you, where you've gotten to. I wanted to change the topic of conversation just a little bit. It's not, not a huge, huge pivot, but one of the the focuses that we've got this season uh, in the Future Law Podcast is around skills and competencies, and and I'm really interested in that kind of question when I teach students, when I talk to to lawyers and talk to legal tech founders. You know, what are the sorts of things that we should be teaching students? What are the sorts of things that you look for when you're hiring? What are the things that you can't find? As a legal tech founder, you know, like it's, it does, as you said at the beginning, you know, there's a, a pretty profound change that's taking place in the legal profession around willingness to spend money on technology and a recognition that this can really help. And there are lots of changes happening within the sector. I'm just really interested at how people can position themselves um, to, to be successful in this space. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. So I guess a good way to think about startups is not to necessarily think of it as a legal tech startup, but first of all, first and foremost, that it is just a startup like any other startup. And for that reason, there are many, many different roles that you can take up in a startup. Like it's pretty much just a, a super compact version of a big business. And so startups will 
need people in marketing, right? Digital marketing, content marketing, events marketing. We will need people in sales, cold call sales or email sales or, uh, you know, going out and, and closing deals types of sales, product designers, UI, UX, people who are developers, you know, front-end developers, back-end developers, DevOps, etc. QA testers. You also have you know, product managers who are kind of the interface between the product team and the business outcomes. Um, you have finance operations. You know, I could keep going. It's it's basically just you've got a, a business structure that's been condensed into you know a small organization. It's going to need all these different roles. And so at the end of the day, it is you know you choose to work in a startup, no matter what profession you're in. Even a lawyer, as an example, like startups. They're going to need lawyers, right? So you choose to work in a startup because certain characteristics of startups um, excite you. Things like, you know, you get to work with the founder still being in the organization, right? When you work for a big business, often you don't get the luxury of working with the founders, right? Um, things like fast-paced moving and, and high impact, all those kind of things. And so if you want to work in a startup, you know, my tip in terms of being able to uh, land a role is to actually understand the nuance of the startup because it is such a small organization Understanding kind of, you know, the, the product um, and what it's trying to do, but also the values and culture of the organization often are held very highly by um, startups. So being able to demonstrate that as well in sort of the interview process, understanding the stage of the startup, because startups actually grow so quickly, they're not all the same. Let's say you're joining just the founders versus a startup with like eight people versus a startup with 20 people, 50 people, 100 people. It's going to be very, very different in terms of what they, they're looking out for. Um, in each of those stages. So it's just about doing your homework, doing some research. And honestly, people in startups are also very accessible. So it would make sense to almost even just catch up with some of the employees, let's say in a startup and say, hey, what's a day in the life of? I'm interested. What would be your tips? And sort of take that kind of approach instead. There's also a sort of a sense, I think, of a, a lot of people who, you know, don't have the particular interest, uh, you know, the, the moxie or the, um, you know, the background to be able to, to found their own, but actually want to work within the legal tech kind of environment. You know, what are the sorts of things that you're seeing in the space that are valuable as, as skills and competencies? In order to build a good business and a good product, you have to have good empathy for your customers and your users. And I think given that legal is a profession in of itself, you're always going to have the most empathy coming from within. And I think that's kind of the competitive advantage of lawyers starting legal tech startups. I think what we need to be um, mindful of is that throughout law school and in particular, maybe even in private practice, we tend to also be trained to be very meticulous and um, perfectionist in, in a positive way in, in that role to get things right. Because at the end of the day, we are... Um, advisors and we you know manage risk and i think that is something we should be mindful of because that particular skill needs to be decoupled from what is needed to to kind of build and run a good product business because often building a startup and building a product is messy it's scrappy and it's imperfect it's like we're doing iteration after iteration after iteration getting infinite feedback on clients before we launch the tool and before we know it Make sure you get enough um, direct uh, feedback from your customers and use that feedback to build back into the business, into the product. By spending too long in a black box, you can end up spending a lot of money building the wrong thing. One of the things I've been interested in is, is whether lawyers are good at creating legal tech startups or legal tech generally, right? So um, do you think that lawyers are, are kind of disposed towards the the kind of the world of, of startups um i think that there is a role for for lawyers who've got an idea around the technology and entrepreneurship to have 
uh, a kind of a place within within startups. But I'm just wondering whether you think that the way that we train lawyers and the sorts of skills that we emphasize in law um, are ones that that kind of help uh, in this particular arena that you live in. You know, you can take this many ways, but lawyers tend to also trust lawyers a bit more um, generally when it comes to just telling lawyers how to better do their work. Like that's just the reality of the industry. That kind of background also does obviously help from a from a, a perception perspective. But uh, yeah, we just got to all be mindful of how we are legally trained and that may not necessarily always be the best uh, skill set or mindset that we take into product development and company building. What does the next uh, year, 18 months hold for you and Checkbox? There's a lot to learn still at every stage of the business. And for me as a founder, that professional development really excites me. And uh, I can't wait to kind of build a world-class global team breaking out of Australia and, um, yeah, giving all the global players a run for their money. <laughs> well, we wish you well. I think it's going to be a, a fantastic journey. And, and uh, congratulations on where you've got to at this point and good luck with the next stage. I've been joined by Evan Wong, the CEO of Checkbox.ai. Evan, thanks so much for your time here today on the Future Law Podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. It was a pleasure. That was Dan Hunter chatting with Evan Wong about innovation in legal tech. Thanks for listening to the Future Law Podcast. Next week, I'll be chatting with John Madison, a lawyer turned Pulitzer Prize winning biographer and historian about taking deep dives into history and finding valuable lessons for the present and future. If you'd like to share your thoughts on legal tech, startups, or the skill sets needed for the new world of law, then send us an email at futurelawpodcast at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us via Twitter at the Future Law Pod. Also, if you're enjoying our show, don't hesitate to rate and review us on Apple or Spotify. Thank you to our executive producer and editor, Paria Tahirzadeh, and editor, Fiona Smith. The show is brought to you by Queensland University of Technology. Bye for now.